Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com odyssey. That's greenlight.com odyssey. Hello and welcome to True Crime Dailies, the sidebar taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an LA County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, June 24th, 2022. And today we are excited to be joined by Christopher Melcher, a celebrity divorce attorney, family law consultant, and legal analyst with deep experience in complex financial and family law litigation. Chris, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. It's uh, really cool some of the shows that are, or cases that we're gonna be discussing on the show today and look forward to it. Absolutely. Uh, before we jump in, Chris, a lot to discuss, but tell us a little bit about your practice and uh, your background. Well, I actually started in criminal defense and that was fun. My dad was a prosecutor and so that's what I wanted to do. But when I got out in 93, 94, there was just no hiring. So I was doing criminal defense and I had a lot of fun with it. I felt like a real lawyer like yourself, you know, being in the courtroom, <laughs> doing jury trials, you know, and, and, and representing the underdog. So that's the beginning of my career. And then I shifted over to family law. I had no idea what this practice area was about, but I'm so happy I did it because we're getting to help people in all walks of life, but these are highly complex cases typically that I'm handling, very, very large estates, and um, every aspect of their life is affected, of course, when they're going through a dispute uh, with a spouse or, or romantic partner. So I've, I've had fun with it. And um, kind of at this point in my career, kind of more enjoying doing the legal commentary work uh, over on Twitter and YouTube streaming and, and traditional media interviews doesn't pay. But I, I just like sharing that knowledge and having those discussions on, on those platforms. Well, that's why we are excited to have you as a guest today to get those insights um, and play upon your experience. Um, so the first case we're going to turn to is here. Uh, I know you're in Los Angeles. I'm in downtown L.A. 
Uh, it's out of Santa Monica, California. A civil jury has found Bill Cosby guilty of sexually abusing a teenager at the Playboy Mansion in a case dating back to 1975, awarding plaintiff Judith Huth $500,000. Huth, now 64, alleges that when she was 16 years old in 1975, she and her friend met Cosby at a Los Angeles area park. Days later, Cosby and her drink alcohol as part of a game, quote unquote, that took place at the Playboy Mansion. Uh, he then took her into an isolated bedroom, allegedly kissed her on the mouth and used her hand to perform a sex act on him. Cosby did not appear in court, invoking his Fifth Amendment privilege, but video deposition of Cosby denying the allegations was shown to the jury. Cosby's team plans to appeal the ruling. Uh, first off, Kurt, what was your reaction to this outcome? Did this surprise you at all? Well, it's, you know, it's hard. He, he's definitely a target um, for all of these claims that have been brought against him because of that very well-publicized criminal case and that eventually was, was reversed on appeal. But we have all these claims being made. And what's difficult uh, to defend something like that is that the incidents occurred or allegedly occurred so long ago. And it's a consequence of changes to law in California and else, elsewhere in the U.S. that revived uh, the right to bring these claims. Most of the time, there's a deadline called a statute of limitations where people have to bring a civil case against somebody. And certainly something that happened in the 70s would ordinarily be way too late to bring. But the, these state laws have allowed uh, these claims to be brought and so here it is um, but how as as a defendant as a civil defendant do you really effectively defend yourself against something that happened in the 70s and remember that's before social media and smartphones and all the stuff now that we have that are tracking our communications and even movements back in the 70s we didn't have any of that and even people who were around to testify may not be around anymore so even if he committed all these acts, it's very difficult to kind of bring a case. So yeah, you make an far. excellent point from the dis defense perspective. I, I was thinking of it from the plaintiff's perspective. How do you prove a case this old, right? I mean, in, in, according to uh, the testimony, there was some discrepancies as far as, you know, things they could remember and trying to track it to certain years. I know they had to change her age even at one point because it didn't kind of comport with the other evidence that they had. It, it really came down to there was very little corroborating evidence, but the jury saw it. Otherwise, do you think, and you pointed this out, Chris, his tarnished reputation played a role with those jurors? Well, I think so. And and in jury selection, they would have gone through and asked prospective jurors their knowledge of Bill Cosby and these other allegations that have been made. And and you got to think people have known about or heard about him. And so and the juror to get on there would have to say, I'm willing to put aside uh, any beliefs or opinions that I formed previously in the case. Yeah, right. And um <laughs> And, and also the fact that he was absent. Uh, so he elected not to be present during any of the trial. And you got to think that would also impact a juror thinking, well, he's, he doesn't even care. He's not even here. So why should I care? I'm here. I'm taken away from my family, from my friends, my work. I'm down in this courthouse. I'm forced to listen to all this information. And this guy doesn't even show up. I got to think that that played a bigger part in it. 
Um, and there were a lot of inconsistencies in her story. Of course there would be if I were representing the plaintiff, saying if, if, if this was a perfect story, it would be a lie. Because how could you tell a story about something that happened in the 70s and make it perfectly consistent? No, of course there's inconsistencies. And this is what makes it fun being a lawyer, because you could take any, any, any issue in a case, like an inconsistency, and say, well, that proves that I'm telling the truth because it's inconsistent. Yeah. Chris, I couldn't agree with you more, especially in the point that you make about him not being present. I don't I don't know um, if that was a strategic decision made or if, you know, he just as a client said, if I don't have to be there, I'm not going to be there. Uh, he's been through, a you know, a couple of trials already before. But I, I completely agree with you that the jurors are thinking, well, they're they're not only thinking I have to be here. He doesn't even have to be here. But they also don't have to look anybody in the eye when they find them liable, right? I mean, it's it's another thing if there's an actual person sitting there that you're going to have to, you know, either convict or find liable, and and they're absent. Well, then it's just I'm I'm making this this finding against kind of, uh, you know, the ether. There's no one there. Um, I I thought that was a strange choice. Um, the other thing is that him not testifying. I know he's got a Fifth Amendment right. But jurors want to hear from the accused, right? They want to know uh, there wasn't kind of a, a criminal um, risk here, I don't think. I could be wrong. But they want to hear from that person being accused. Do you deny this? And a, a video deposition, I don't know if it it would carry the day. The other question I had for you, Chris, is I, I found this curious. The jury awarded uh, Ms. Huth $500,000 in compensatory damages but no punitive damages. Could you first for uh, listeners kind of explain the difference between the two and then give us your insight as to is that 500,000 a message or no? Yeah, that was a surprising part of this. So basically when you, when, this is not a criminal case, it's a civil case. So it's a civil case that the plaintiff, Ms. Huth brought seeking monetary damages because that's all the court can do is, is saying something happened and a jury agrees and issue this award of damages and the, the jury determines those damages and what that means here in english is um pain and suffering would be the major component of it there could also be lost wages but this miss huth was very young at this point in time so i don't think she lost work uh it could mean payment of medical expenses like therapy bills so those are all what we call compensatory damages to compensate her for the harm that occurred that resulted in her having experienced pain, suffering, loss of wages, or payment of therapy bills. And the jury gets to determine what that is and said, hey, I listened to all the evidence. I think it's half a million dollars. They could have also assessed what are called punitive damages, and those are to punish or make an example out of the defendant is saying that this uh, conduct is so outrageous and oppressive that we are going to add an element of damages and make him pay maybe millions of dollars to punish him and to make sure that other people don't do the same thing as an example. They didn't award those. Now, the half a million, I mean, it's like, I don't know how they, this is the thing about juries, you don't know how they come up with these numbers. Kind of a little surprised it wasn't more. Yeah. Um, but they came up with this number maybe because there were the inconsistencies and they just figured it was the right amount. Now, this yeah. may be insured. 
Um, Bill Cosby tendered, turned over a lot of these claims to homeowners insurance policies that he had at the time. And if you own a home or if you rent a place, there is liability protection uh, associated with that policy. They'll indemnify you or pay a lawyer to defend you and pay a verdict against you for particular types of conduct. So he had an insurance company, I believe, helping defending him on this. But um, due to the nature of the conduct, there's probably going to be a defense by the insurance company saying, we don't cover that. We cover if your dog bites somebody or somebody trips uh, inside your house and gets hurt, but we're not going to cover this conduct. So um, he'll probably have a hard time getting it paid, but he may have got his lawyer's fees paid through the insurance. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I, w- I was I was surprised by that, too. I was surprised, one, by the, the verdict at all. But then, two, the 500000 I don't – I know it's a lot of money. I'm not trying to say it's not, but I, I was shocked. I thought it would be more, too. If you're finding somebody liable for this kind of conduct, you thought – you know. We have a, a recent case with with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, and I know it's comparing apples to bricks. They're entirely different things, but that was $5 million in punitives and $10 million in compensatory damages. You know, that that sends a message. This to me is almost like, you know, we, we think he did something wrong. We're going to slap him on the wrist, but we're not trying to make an example out of him. But, but who knows? Until those jurors start to speak, we, we won't really know. Uh, last question on this. Um, do you think this opens up the gate for a bunch of other uh, long ago kind of allegations against Cosby or other celebrity types? Well, <clears throat> the, the time may have stopped for that. Um, you know, there was this window of opportunity to bring these claims. I'm not sure, you know, if it's still open or closed. Um, I got to think at this point, uh, anyone who was going to make a claim would have came forward already. Uh, I do think that this is a very difficult process to go through. And to get half a million dollars, you got to pay you know, your, your lawyer. And most of these are pretty much all going to be on contingency. So Gloria Allred might get 40 percent of that fee. So that's uh, that award if, if it's collected. So first you got to collect it. And then 200,000 right there is going to Allred plus the expert witness fees, all the costs of depositions and investigations, which could be another couple hundred thousand. I mean, Huth may not get a whole lot of anything out of this other than maybe the satisfaction of saying, hey, I proved that you did this to me. But in terms of dollars, she may not wind up with a lot. And the message is to other people, is it worth it? Right, right. And I I, I tend to agree with you. I think this may have been more about, uh, you know, her catharsis and saying, you know, finally someone says what you did to me was wrong rather than the money itself. Let's turn now to another case out of Venice, Florida. A a Florida judge will rule on the lawsuit filed by Joseph Petito and Nicole Schmidt, the parents of Gabby Petito, against Brian Laundrie's parents, Christopher and Roberta Laundrie. Judge Hunter Carroll is set to determine if the case will proceed to a jury trial. The Petitos allege that Brian Laundrie told his parents that he had murdered Gabby and that the Laundries failed to disclose her death or the possible location of her body to authorities. They further allege that the Laundrie family then knowingly went on a vacation with Brian Laundrie and aided their son in evading authorities. 
Gabby Petito disappeared uh, tragically in August 25th of last year while Brian Laundrie returned to Florida. Her body was later found in National Park near Wyoming, and the two had been on a cross-country road trip that was extensively documented on social media. Her death was ruled a homicide by strangulation. Brian Laundrie was eventually found dead with a backpack containing a gun and notebook in which he allegedly confessed to the murder. His death was ruled a suicide. The Laundries have sought a dismissal of the lawsuit, arguing that they had a First Amendment right to deny disclosing information on Gabby. Okay, a lot to unpack here, Chris. This is really a First Amendment case, though. The Laundries are claiming that they had a First Amendment right not to speak. What are your thoughts on that? Is that persuasive to you? Well, I listened to that argument and it was super interesting. And this is the kind of stuff if you go to law school, you you learn about in um, a case called torts. And what torts is dealing with are these civil wrongs against another person. And um, to be able to sue somebody uh, for a crime, I mean, for an issue like negligence, you have to have a legal duty to the injured party. And that's really what this whole thing is about, is that the parents of Brian Laundrie um, failed to inform the parents of Gabby Petito of what they knew, that they knew allegedly from their son, Brian, that Gabby was deceased and potentially where her body was. And number one, that they failed to disclose those facts to the Gabby's parents who obviously were very distressed, didn't know if she was dead or alive, didn't know where she was, and absolutely needed that information. So there's no question from a moral standpoint that they should have told these parents, this is what we know about your daughter. But we're not dealing with a court of morality, we're dealing with a court of law. And to sue in there, they have to have a legal obligation to speak. And right. the parents of Brian are saying, like, even if we knew all this information that you claim that we do, um, we had no obligation to say anything. And matter of fact, that we had a First Amendment right to be quiet. And so I thought that um, Gabby's, the lawyer for Gabby's parents did a very good job in saying, look, Judge, even if that's true, even if they could uh, withhold this information and remain quiet without being sued or having any legal liability for it, they didn't do that. They went on the air, you know, to the media through their lawyer and said, we, as the parents of Brian, hope that Gabby is found safe and sound and brought back to, you know, where she belongs. And when they elected to speak, they told a lie. And that that what is what created the liability was this outrageous conduct and deciding to give false information and false hope to the parents of Gabby through their statement to the media that they uh, were now liable for the extra pain and suffering that were caused to the parents by that lie. That's such a it's such an interesting legal argument uh, and, and not to get too much into the weeds on this, but. I was thinking, do you think there's an argument for the Petitos that your First Amendment protections and, and defenses that you're making laundries don't apply here because you don't have a First Amendment um, right to cover up or conceal or help someone 
uh, to evade the authorities when covering up a crime. What, what do you think about that? Do you think that I know we're talking cr criminal crossover <clears throat> to civil, but do you think that creates a civil liability by saying, no, you, you don't have a First Amendment right to deceive the police in their efforts to to um, investigate a crime? Well, that's it. it. It's easy to kind of throw all this stuff out there. First Amendment or Fifth Amendment, you know, we have all right. these rights, but there are limits. And and if they would have remained silent, there's no question that they would be OK. They have a Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate themselves, which if this story is true, they may have aided or abetted. They may have committed some kind of crime. And so they have a right if 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 that's possible that they could have been charged with something to remain quiet about it. And on the First Amendment side, they have a right to speak. They have also have a right to say, I'm not going to speak. But what they're ignoring, what the parents of, of Brian are ignoring is that they chose to speak. And yeah. once you choose to speak now, well, you, if you, you had a Fifth Amendment right, you are now at least partially not exercising it by electing to speak through your lawyer. And if you had a right to remain quiet under the First Amendment, not to speak, well, you've waived that by speaking. So that's that's the part that um, I think Gabby's parent, the lawyer for Gabby's parents was effectively showing like, hey, judge, don't be fooled by these arguments about the right to remain silent, the right not to speak. These people chose to sp speak. And once they yeah. did that, they then opened themselves up to liability because they lied. Yeah. Such an interesting case from a, both from a just a, a storytelling, right? I mean, it was, it was something that captured the nation. This this awful, awful murder that took place, and then him committing suicide in the in the swamps of Florida. Um, but from a legal perspective, it's also very fascinating. Um, last point on this: if the judge decides yes, this can proceed to trial, what are what do you think are the chances that ever sees the light of day, or is this something that gets settled out of court? Well, this stage is whether whether they've adequately pled a case, meaning whether the the complaint that they've written out is something that could get to a jury from or is there just no legal duty at all. So it seems like uh, I'm hoping that uh, that this will be allowed to go to a jury. Uh, the judge was a little skeptical, but I, I think that the right arguments were made. So then it goes to a jury. There are also probably is homeowners insurance involved there for Brian's <laughs> parents that are picking up the legal defense and may indemnify. There may be some offer uh, made there to pay some money. But just like we talked about in these other cases, it's not all about money. And right. I think that the the offense here was that these other these sets of parents, which is now fighting, is that just to come out there and expose what these people knew and that they had failed to disclose that and to get that out there in the public may be more important to Gabby's legacy um, honoring her than to get a few bucks from their insurance company. Yeah, yeah, I think you might be absolutely right. It's also funny to me how much insurance creeps up into each one of these cases. All right, now turning to San Jose, California, we have Ramesh, also known as Sunny Balwani, and Elizabeth Holmes, ex-business partners and romantic partners, built a Silicon Valley biotech blood testing company named Theranos that was allegedly all completely a fraud. According to prosecutors, Holmes and Balwani conspired together to defraud investors out of millions and endangered patients' lives by creating flawed blood testing analysis 
which even accepted patients in Walgreens stores. They did this despite knowing that Theranos technology was not operational. In January, a jury found Holmes guilty of defrauding investors, but however, not guilty of defrauding patients. Okay, the Theranos story has been uh, heavily publicized. There was a highly publicized documentary. I don't know if you saw it, Chris. I watched it. It was fascinating. And then there's also this dramatized docu-series that just came out. How do you think, in, in, in I guess, in not in this case, uh, you know, not limiting it to this case, but in any case that has this much exposure, does that influence jurors' willingness uh, to convict? Or how does that play a role in jurors, you think? You know, it, it's hard with these high-profile cases. Uh, and even if you don't have a jury trial, if you have a judge uh, deciding it, how could you not be impacted by uh, all of the coverage? And it's not just, of course, mainstream media, but social media coverage of these things. And sure, there are some people who maybe have never heard of the case or, or don't know any facts about it. And those are really the jurors that you're looking for because anyone who's kind of taken the time, maybe watched um, coverage of this, may already have made up their mind and really can't give a fair trial to one side. So that's very difficult to exclude, uh, even in jury selection. But then you have the case when it starts receives intense coverage. And so even if they go into the trial not knowing a thing about it, um, you know, look, they're not sequestered. They're not being holed up and locked up in a hotel room for all this time. They're, they're going home. They're checking their phones. They're checking their news fees or watching TV. They're going to be exposed to some of this stuff. Yeah. And it could be very tempting to be like, wow, you know, I want to see what's really going on here, not just what I'm being told in court. So there is this dynamic, and judges are victims of it too. Um, so it's it's very difficult, and I think we we just have to do our best with it. Um, and you know, the thing is, what I found in being an advocate is just really trying to humanize people because there is this image that we have of folks when we see them on TV or we read about them, and it's very easy to maybe form lines for or against them based on that one-dimensional image. But really, it's our job as advocates to humanize these people in the courtroom so that um, hopefully can open their minds to judge them fairly. Yeah. Uh, going back to one of the points you made earlier, it, it is funny. We live in a time where even if people are doing their best to try to avoid the news about a highly publicized case, they might not be able to with all the technology that we have. We're, we are far past the days where it was like, okay, I'm on this high profile trial. I'm just not going to read the newspaper or turn on the nightly news. But we are we are bombarded with information from our phones, even if we're not even looking for it. I, the, the case of Sarah Palin's defamation lawsuit comes to mind where the jurors were receiving push notifications that the judge was dis going to dismiss the case as they were deliberating. So it's like even with their best efforts, they might not be able to avoid this type of information. And I wonder how things are going to change or what they're going to do to address that in the future. What do you think? Well, you know, it's it's interesting about these push notifications. And I mean, before we would we would in a high profile case sometimes see jurors sequestered and they would be taken from the little juror bus into a juror hotel and, and locked up there. And and they would the way that they would keep them from being exposed is they wouldn't give them a newspaper. I mean, this is how archaic right. it was not too long ago. You know, right. just as long as they didn't see a newspaper, they were they were in the clear. Well, now, of course, nobody even I don't even know if they have newspapers. 
So everything's over the phone. And maybe it's saying like the, the maybe the modern sequestration is going to be we're going to take your phone from you. Like, Boy. OK, now no one's going to ever serve on a jury. <laughs> but that, that would be the way of sequestering them from from having this information. And what I'm doing, because I'm in family court in L.A. and California, we don't have a right to jury trial. I mean, you can take somebody's kids or house and retirement plan by a judge, you know, but if you have a fender bender accident, you get a right to a jury trial. So I'm pushing this same issue with with judges in my hope yeah. high profile cases and saying, like, you know, you tell a jury you can't look at this stuff. I hope you're honoring the same rules, judge, in a respectful <laughs> way. I'm sure I'm sure you get a lot of positive reaction <laughs> to that kind of request. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, let's turn to Tallahassee, Florida. Andrew Gillum, the former mayor of Tallahassee and 2018 Democratic nominee for Florida governor, faces 21 charges, including conspiracy and wire fraud. This broke this week. He also faces charges of making false statements to two FBI agents who posed as developers. The agents allegedly offered Gillum money and perks for support of their projects. Federal prosecutors allege that Gillum and an associate, and this is a quote, conspired to commit wire fraud by unlawfully soliciting and obtaining funds from various entities and individuals through false and fraudulent promises and representations that the funds would be used for legitimate purposes. The pair allegedly asked the agents for a $100,000 campaign contribution in exchange for favorable project consideration. The money was to be given to a private company to avoid being named in campaign finance documents. The company owned by Gillum's associate allegedly kept the sum of money and then funneled portions of it back to Gillum in a series of uh, payments. Gillum was seen as a rising star in the Democratic Party after nearly beating Ron DeSantis in a race for governor that required a recount. You might remember, however, that in March of 2020, Gillum was found intoxicated in a hotel room with two men, one of whom was an escort. So the problems continue to mount for Andrew. The agents, uh, Chris, posing as developers, allegedly even met with Gillum in New York City, paid for his hotel drinks and expenses, including Hamilton tickets. Does the defense have a valid argument here for entrapment with all of this kind of actions on the federal agents part? It's not like they're sitting back waiting for trouble. It looks like they're pursuing it. What do you think? Yeah, that, that's got to be, um, <clears throat> you know, one of the defenses here is, is that obviously he was targeted by the federal government. They, they were investigating him. They sent these undercover agents. He was wined and dined. And, and then there's some question about like, well, would he, the defendant, have had this idea of, of taking these bribes and all this corruption on his own? Or did he kind of develop a relationship with these folks and he's now trying to accommodate them and they really planted this evil intent in his mind and he was just kind of going along with what they had encouraged him to do? Now, the federal agents know about the entrapment defense and they're, they're going to be careful. I mean, everything that they're doing at least with him, is going to be on tape. So there's going to be some kind of record there of all the communications that they've had with him. But sure, that's going to be an issue. I think what the hard part for him to defend on is the lying to agents afterwards. So he was interviewed by the FBI. They asked him directly, did you ever get payments from these developers and hoping to you know, give them some quid pro quo, some kind of corrupt purpose? No. 
And just like we saw with Martha Stewart, very hard to prove the underlying crime, but proving that you lied about it is much easier. It's on tape. They asked him a direct question. He said no. Lying to the FBI is a crime. So my guess is that's the one he's either going to cop a plea to or be convicted of because the underlying stuff may be questionable. That is such a good point and something I wanted to highlight, too, and something that a lot of folks don't understand, but that the same crime doesn't exist on the state level. If you if you're if the police pull you over and say, have you been drinking, sir? And you say, no, I haven't. And you take a breathalyzer and it turns out your blood alcohol is through the roof. They don't then charge you in addition to DUI with lying to law enforcement. There is there is no crime there on a state level. Uh, as far as lying to law enforcement. But on the federal level, lying to the FBI is a thing. And you're, you're right. Sometimes the underlying crime is a little too complicated and there's way too many moving parts for them to to try to prove that. But it's easy to prove a lie if it's a straightforward. Did you do this? Did you make this de- deposit? Did you meet with that person? No, no, no. And they've got the videotape and the audio tape and the satellite footage of you entering and exiting the the, the hotel room. It, it, you know, you're, you're dead to rights and they're going to get you to plead to something like that. The the other point you make, um, this being a federal case, they're not operating on, on a budget, right? <laughs> they've been investigating this for months and with agents and with recording and they've got every which way it's going to be a difficult case uh, for him to defend. However, in addition to the uh, entrapment defense, uh, Gillum is already claiming that this is all political. What role, if any, do you think that'll have in this case? And do you think that will be at all be persuasive to uh, prosecutors in, in, in a plea negotiation? Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to following this story and see what evidence he's going to produce to show that it was a politically motivated prosecution. And certainly if he can show that, that uh, someone in the government or some branch of the government had it out for him and wanted to silence him, wanted to kill his chances of rising up here, that uh, that would be persuasive. But he also has to keep in mind that he himself is a politician and politicians are not liked, um, generally speaking, and they're also <laughs> not trusted. So he's going to have to somehow address that in you know the way he messages his case that, yes, I'm a politician, but I'm different than the politicians that you think about. I was actually the truth teller, the justice seeker, the, the one in the right, and that's why they targeted me. So he's going to have to come up with something that, puts, that makes him the likable character. I agree, but I think it's going to be like searching for a, a needle in a haystack, unfortunately, for Mr. Gillum. Uh, this has been a pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Well, uh, Twitter is my thing. So if my handle over there is CA underscore divorce. So I'm following celeb legal news stories. Those are the ones that I choose to comment on. So when something's happening, I'm generally going to comment on that. So that's a good place to uh, find me and interact with me. And to me, it's having a discussion. So I'm not just blasting information out there. I'm trying to learn from other people. And I love to see your comments. 
Fantastic. We will definitely check it out. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.